So we'll be reading from Revelation chapter 7. Um, so I'll give you a second to find that in your Bibles. All right. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes while holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he, sits, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thanks so much. That's perfect. I'm going to start by praying. God, you are so good to us. Please help us to get your word here. Help us to care deeply about it. Help us to be changed by it. Everyone who agreed said, Amen. Amen. I'd love to start by pointing out something that you might already have noticed, which is that every culture reacts differently to the teachings of the Bible. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. Um, in the cultural moment that I inhabit, probably the same culture that you inhabit, it's considered very beautiful what Jesus taught us about uh, when someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. That's generally get to thumbs up. 
from the culture that I'm part of. But if you are part of a different cultural moment or a different culture, you actually might prioritize something like honor and say, no, 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 you, there's no way you could turn the other cheek. That makes no sense. Can you see how the culture that you're in affects your response to the Bible? Yeah? Let me show you, it won't come up on the screen yet, but if you've got your eyes on verse 9, let me show you something that uh, you might have breezed over as a result of the culture that you're in. Uh, verse 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And you might have just breezed over that without really noticing how much of a big deal it is because you live in this cultural moment where you go, yeah, duh, everyone gets access to God, right? He's not racist. He doesn't have racial divisions. Yeah, duh. But that's not something that everyone thought always. And even in certain parts of the world today, you could probably find people who think that God draws distinctions upon racial lines. Can you see how the culture that you live in affects the way that you react to the Bible? In fact, that bit is so enculturated in us that it's a part of ChatGPT's version of this sermon. Right? I typed it in at 4.22 this afternoon. It gave me three paragraphs. One of the paragraphs about Revelation 7 reads like this. This vision of a great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of God is a reminder that the love of God is universal and that all people, regardless of their background or circumstances, are welcomed into the kingdom of God. Pretty good, right? Pretty good. My job is uh, on the line. And even ChatGPT knows that that's something you've got to say when you come up to verse 9. It's, just a, it's a beautiful teaching. We're kind of all around it. Can you see how your culture affects the way that you respond to the Bible? There's also something in this chapter that your culture and my culture doesn't feel super comfortable with. And it's actually the thing that kicks off this chapter. It's the very basis of this chapter that we feel very uncomfortable with. It's the idea of a God who will one day bring a final, fair, powerful judgment. See, if you're kind of checking things out at church, um, I would imagine that you feel pretty uncomfortable, as I do, with the idea of a God who judges. I would love to just stand up here and talk to you about God's love. That's all there is. We don't have to worry about judgment. I would like to speak to you as a white 32-year-old male in 2023 and just talk to you about the love of God. And at the same time, um, it is inescapable for me in Revelation 7 that judgment sits at the beginning of this passage, even if it's not the end. Um, the reason I think that is you get to like verse 10, for example. It won't come up on the screen, but you can look in your Bibles. And it says, salvation belongs to our God. You can only be saved when there's something to be saved from, yeah? What's that thing? It's the judgment of God. Salvation belongs to our God. And if you even, this one will come up on the screen, chapter 6, verse 17. Chapter 6, verse 17 is where last chapter and last week's sermon kind of finishes off. It says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That's the immediate context of what we're talking about tonight. Um, there is a moment and a day of judgment that's set for all people ever, and we actually, when we interrogate ourselves, we kind of want that. When we think about it and sit on it for just a second, 
we actually do like the idea that there is a God of judgment. What keeps me from wanting that is when I sit a little bit too deeply in my own privilege and maybe in my own westernness. Come with me on this thought experiment, right? I have never lived through a war. I don't think many of us have. I've never had that crippling experience of thinking tomorrow someone I don't know could come and take away my livelihood. I have never experienced a gross personal injustice. Now, some of you in the room have. But a lot of us in the room, we struggle with the idea of justice because the injustices we've, we've felt have been minor. They've been annoying, they've been painful, but they haven't been gross personal injustices. And so in my privilege and my westernness, I struggle with the idea of judgment. But if I can just lay those things to the side for a second, and I can think about the lived experience of someone maybe who's lived through a war or is currently living through a war, and you tell me that there is a God of justice who will judge the evil and wicked deeds against the image bearers of God, I'm kind of interested. And maybe you don't even have to think about this too hard yourself because you know that you are a victim of a gross personal injustice. And for you, it's not that hard, is it, to say, yes, I do want justice. Yes, I do want fairness. Yes, I do want a day of reckoning. And if we can leave behind for just a second our privilege and our westernness, we start to see that, oh, I kind of do want a day of judgment. I kind of do want someone to set things right at the end. If you cast your eyes all the way down, this won't come up, but the final verse of chapter 7 says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How does that possible without a God who judges? Because sometimes people cause tears. We need a God who will wipe away all of our tears by bringing a final day of judgment. And so this question that is on the screen, chapter 6, verse 17, is really what I want to make a big deal out of today. Chapter 6, verse 17 says, who can withstand? So if you're a note taker and you want a title for today, I would write down, who can withstand? Because at the same time, in the whole of life, aren't we? We are both um, in the juror's seat, like we're crying for justice, and we're also in the seat of the accused, and we're crying for mercy. I want there to be a day of judgment and I also want to withstand it. If you're with me so far, I'm hoping today will bring you a lot of clarity and a lot of relief. Because what we're going to do is walk through chapter 7. I'll show you a couple of different ways that the Bible talks about those who can withstand. So with all that said, we can get verse 1 up on the screen and we are going to begin our walk together. Does that sound okay? Thumbs up, that sounds okay? Fantastic. After this, verse 1, we got on the screen, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Now pause there for a second. Science interlude. It says four corners. Is the earth flat? No. We're in imagery here, yeah? Um, if science is your big objection to the Bible, just hold tight. I reckon the Bible actually does reconcile really well with science. In fact, I would say that biblical thought is the foundation of Western science. But let's keep going. 
to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. I would say that's the first group of people or the first way that they're described in this chapter. Who can withstand? It's the servants of our God. That is another way of saying a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are, in the language of Revelation 7.3, a servant of God. That is not just something you do sometimes. That is literally who you are, your identity as one, as a servant of God. Everyone's got to serve someone. If you're smart, you'll make it the one who rules the universe. Chapter 7, verse 4. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Rory, are you in the house? Can you give us a wave? I saw Rory's right up the back there. I had coffee with Rory the other day, and I said, what's confusing? And he said, 144,000. I said, okay, let's do it. So, I'll give you the non-short version. I'll give you the deep version of 144,000, right? The first thing to note is that apart from one, the servants of God can withstand, two, those who are sealed. It's a description of the same kind of person, but it's two descriptions of what a believer truly is. You are sealed by God. So it says 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, and then we have that list of 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. Now it looks like the 12 tribes, right? One of the 12 tribes, however, was named Dan. Can you see Dan listed in the 12 tribes of Israel? 10 points if you can, because I can't. Uh, what that tells you is actually that something's going on there. It's not super straightforward. You can dig into that a little bit later. Uh, what you will notice, though, is it's 12,000, 12 times. Uh, and the number 144,000, if you've got it in your head, it's 12 by 12 by 1,000. Now, if you've hung out in Revelation before, amazing. If you haven't, here's the cheat code. 12 is a big deal number. Right? There were 12, twi 12 tribes. There were 12 apostles. 12 is kind of a fullness number. And so 12 by 12, in the way that they thought back then, it kind of means very 12. Or it means completely 12. It's a completeness number. Completely. And then you get 1,000, which is a multitude number. 1,000 is like, you know when you ask a four-year-old, like, what's the largest number in the world? They say like 1,000, right? They're kind of thinking like that, and they're like, 1,000 times 12 by 12. Like, heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps. It's a, it's, a, it's a language of completeness, and it's the language of multitude. And here's where some people think differently from other people. I'll give you at least two things and two very reasonable ways of understanding this passage and I'll let you kind of work out which one you think makes more sense. The question is, are the people in verse 4 the same as the people in verse 9? We can get verse 9 up on the screen. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So version 1, did I say we were going to go into the deep dive, is that okay? Great. Version 1 of this says it's the same group of people. Verse 4, the 12,000s, 144,000, and the great multitude, they are the same group of people. They're just everyone who is saved, everyone who's been a servant of God, everyone who's sealed. And that, in my opinion, makes heaps of sense. Love it. There are some other Christians with their brains very tightly screwed on 
um, who have thought a lot about this. And they said maybe verse 4 is a slightly different mob from verse 9. Maybe verse 4 has something more to do with the Old Testament remnant of God's people. That's why there's tribes and there's all these Old Testament things going on in verses 4 through 8. That's why in chapter 9 verse 1 there's like a structural divider. So the same thing that starts verse 9, verse uh, verse 9 is after this. That's the same thing you get in uh, chapter 7 verse 1 after this. That's the same thing you get in chapter 4, verse 1. It like divides things off into little sections. And so maybe after this is trying to divide out the section of people, or maybe it's just trying to divide out the, um, the, the things that he saw. You know, he saw it, here's one angle, here's 144,000. He saw it, here's another angle, it was a great multitude that no one could count. Now, if you tuned out for the last two minutes, that is A-OK. All I need you to know is don't worry, Heaven is not like a cinema where there's limited seating. It's more like Netflix where there's just massive servers and they can just keep adding users. Okay? Everyone who trusts in Jesus will be saved. And if you keep on rolling with me in verse 9, the language there is that they're wearing white robes. Now, white in Revelation can either mean cleanness or victory. I'll let you work out what you think it means in this context, because verse 9 also, what are they waving? Massive palm branches. Does that remind you of anything in the life of Jesus, if you've been hanging out in the Bible for long enough? When he enters into Jerusalem, he's riding a donkey. They lay down their coats so the donkey doesn't have to walk on the dirt. And what do they wave? Massive palm branches. I think it's the language um, that they use when like a king would come back from conquering. People would stand around and wave massive branches. So it's a little bit like the language of victory in verse 9. And we're up to verse 10. The big question we're dealing with, remember with me, is who can withstand? But first I'd love to make a point about praise. Have a look at verse 10. Let's talk about praise. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the, la- on the throne. He doesn't sit on the Lamb. Who sits on the throne and to the... That would be a weird Trinitarian understanding, wouldn't it? <laughs> who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So that's all the people from all nations everywhere praising God with one unified... It doesn't say they're singing. It says they're crying out. I feel like it's relatively similar to what we do when we sing. What we're doing is offering praise to God. And I wonder if you realize that that is the very thing that you were made for. You were made to do something like verse 10. To cry out with everything you have, to rightly direct praise, to orient your life around the actual one who deserves it. You were made to praise God, which makes you feel kind of tiny and kind of huge at the same time. And that is not just what humans were made for. Look at verse 11. And the angels were standing around the throne And the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Just think about the body language there for a second. Um, If you are a male in your 20s 
you may, in your 30s, you may at some point decide that you would like to do this. Right? At that point, you are proposing to somebody. Right? You're, kind of, you're, in a sli- you're, put, you're kind of putting yourself at her mercy. You know, if she says, yeah, nah. It's a, it's a, <laughs> what about the candles? Uh, what the angels are doing... Like 100% at his, they are giving every, they're laying it all before the only one who deserves it. Then one of the elders asked me, verse 13, are you tracking with me? These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? It's another way of asking our question from the start. Who can withstand? Who are these people who somehow made it to this end-time heavenly gathering? And verse 14 is just cheeky. He says, sir, you know. He throws it back at him. And he's like, yeah, I do know. Here, I'm going to tell you. And he said, these are the... And by the way, if you're um, not sure where you're at with Jesus stuff, this is the bit to tune into for this whole sermon. These are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Can you see how weird that image is? Pay attention to the colors. They have washed their robes and made them what color? In the blood of the Lamb. Red. What's going on there? It's a physical reality meeting a spiritual reality. Yeah? The physical reality is red. The physical reality is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Real human, real place, Middle East, pretty close to 2,000 years ago. He, was, he, he claimed to be divine. That's what they killed him for. And so if you ever meet anyone who says, Jesus never claimed to be God, that is literally what they killed him for. He's murdered on that cross in some kind of complex political playouts from the way that it was structured at the time. And that is the physical reality as he bled red. But the spiritual reality is that that red blood means that you can wash your robes in Jesus' death and have them turn white. In this place, it's the language of clean. It's the language of pure. And notice, he doesn't just make your clothes no longer dirty. He literally like, positively gives to you purity from his perfect life because he wasn't just a regular guy. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so his death can be in your place for your sins as your substitute. And so if this is not something that you've ever got around, if this is never something you've made yours, if you have never become a Christian, can I say that tonight could be your night? You could look back and say it was 6.45, 6.50 p.m. on Sunday night in 2023 and I heard about the blood of Jesus that can make my robes white before God so that when God looks at me, he wouldn't say, Ugh. he'd say, that's my daughter and I love her. That's my son and he's perfect in my sight and I'm going to spend eternity with him. Make tonight your night by repenting of your old ways, putting your faith in Jesus, and turning to live that new life. Please, for your good and our joy, make tonight your night.
I've got one more thing to say. Verse 15. And this is particularly for you if you've come to church tonight and you only just made it to church tonight because life hurts and things are not going the way that you planned. Maybe for you, you limped in here. Maybe for you, you're facing a decision that you are freaking out about. Maybe for you, you are facing an anxiety that you are scared of. Maybe you are just torn up on the inside and you do not know which way is up. And if that is you, this passage is a word for you tonight. Verse 15. It's a picture of what heaven will be like. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. It's the image of like a mountain blocking the wind so that you can be safe on the other side. In this life, bad stuff will happen to us. But when we die or Jesus comes back, we will enter a place where we are perfectly sheltered by God. Verse 16, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. And the aircon in the whole building will work the whole time. Verse 17, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. That image is the wrong way around as well, isn't it? Who needs a shepherd? The sheep, the lamb. The lamb needs the shepherd. Apparently the lamb is the shepherd. And what do shepherds do in the Bible? They, verse 17, lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We talked about God's judgment at the top of today. The fact that he is strong enough to judge means that he is also strong enough to wipe every tear from your eye. Some tears in life are caused by things that happen to us. Some tears in life are caused by things that we somewhat contribute to. Some tears in life are caused by external events. Some tears in life are caused by people nearest and dearest to us. Every tear will be wiped away. And so I'll leave you with this. If this is all true, then this suffering right now is as bad as it gets. And when Jesus comes back, or you finish up on this earth, then it will get better. Let me pray. God, it so hurts to exist in this fallen world and we ask that you'd bring the perfect new heavens and new earth, but we recognize there's more people to be saved first and so please help us to be patient. Please help us to endure bad stuff. Please help us to stick with you through it and be drawn to you through it. And God, I pray for the people all around this area and the people here tonight who don't know you yet, that you would save many for your glory and our joy. And everyone who agreed said... So if mission is like Netflix, and we're going to be... Like, can, well, firstly, can we share a password around? That's good. I heard that Netflix are cracking down on password sharing. Have you heard this too? Um, no. That's like, yeah, everyone's freaking out. Um, 
the, um, but the, you know, Jesus is like the opposite of that, right? Like you literally, when you call on the name of Jesus, it's kind of like, this is, this is the one I'm aligned with. You know, my password is one, two, three, four. It's like I'm calling on the name of Jesus. He's my guy. He's not just in, like, a, he's not crassly like an entry ticket. Like I actually know him and yeah. like we so have a relationship. If you're best friends with your password, then that would maybe similar. I you know how you, passwords are often like your like a name and like some n- random numbers and it's something close to you. Yeah, Jamie one two three. <laughs> That's surprisingly close. Uh, <laughs> um, cool. So maybe if we're meant to be sharing, I'll keep the analogy going. If we're sharing our password, sharing Jesus, sharing this thing, we're going to drive this entry, all the way. Yeah, drive, entry into Netflix into heaven. What? How can we share Jesus? How can we share our password in the world? Yeah, that's good. Um, oh, there's so many ways. Um, I've found that people who want to share the message of Jesus pretty quickly find out how to share the message of Jesus. So let me just talk to you briefly about wanting to do it. Um, I think a lot of people, when it comes down to it really deeply, you say, do you believe that your response to Jesus actually determines your eternal destiny. And if you honestly go, yeah, I think it does, then I imagine that you will find ways to share that life with people. I think it often comes down to how deeply are you convinced that eternity is long and the decision is actually very simple. And what a great encouragement from tonight. Even when we feel like we're withstanding from the culture that we have Christ who has withstood and we have victory and peace and he will wipe away tears. It's so beautiful. Uh, Matt, Matthew asks, are some sins kind of greater than others? And, and is God's kind of judgment proportional to that? Now these words I don't understand, but it says, it's hard to accept an autocrat is judged the same as a moral but unbelieving atheist. So a bit about judgment and amounts of sins. That's really helpful. Um, I have heard it said before... Uh, maybe just people lightly misspoke about this. They say, oh, all sins are the same. And that is kind of true, maybe not in their content, but in their effect. So we were, we were rolling with the language of um, pure white robes before, right, from verse 14. I think if you push the idea a little bit, the idea is that you need white spotless robes to enter the great wedding feast of God in heaven. And anything less than spotless white robes, has the same effect. And so our sin, any sin, has the same effect of distancing us from God. But at the same time, in the New Testament, there are bits that say these types of people will be judged more harshly than these types of people. And so it also seems, from the Bible and kind of just from my common sense, that killing someone is a lot worse than some other things. And so if there is, yeah, so sin that can be different amounts from our level... But from God level, it's all the same. It's all sinfulness. Well, it all has the same effect. The same effect. Yeah, okay. Great. And so then Liam asks, how do we really know? We are so tainted by sin. How can we really know that rather than being tainted, we are white, we are clean? How can we hold on to that? The specific question is, how can I have full assurance that my robes are perfectly white when my struggle with sin sometimes makes me doubt my standing before God? While you answer the bands, would you want to come up? Yeah, that's such a good question. How can I have full assurance? And that is one of the unique joys like, of 
particularly the types of churches that this is and the type of theology that is preached here is that gives you assurance. There are some things that call themselves churches that don't lead you to have assurance. And you say, are you going to go to heaven? And they say, I hope I've done enough. But when you truly understand the Bible and you understand the grace of Jesus, that it is 100% grace and not works, it is 100% what Jesus did on the cross and not what you did on this earth, then you can have 100% assurance. And someone could walk up to you and say, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And you can say, yes, not because I'm a great person, but because Jesus is a great person and he gave me his great person record on the cross. So good. Through Jesus, we can have full assurance.